Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using Internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. Traditionally, when you sign your first record deal, it's usually for around seven albums. And theoretically, this is to protect both sides. First of all, it offers the artist a certain degree of security. It gives them a few records to develop and mature, so if they don't score big with that first album, they've got a little longer to establish their career and reputation. Second, the label has a chance to see if their investment in this act pays off. The label puts all kinds of money into the artist up front and therefore needs the artist to turn profitable as soon as possible so they can make the money back and start seeing a return. But a record deal is like a marriage. Sometimes things go very well and everyone lives together happily ever after. And sometimes, for whatever reason, one party wants out. So a divorce is in order. It was this second scenario in which Radiohead found itself at the beginning of 2005. They had fulfilled their end of the bargain to EMI Records. Six studio albums, a live album, half a dozen EPs, along with at least four video releases. And now they wanted out. They had no wish to re-sign with EMI. But what were their options? Okay, option A was to negotiate a killer deal with EMI with the hopes of signing a contract that addressed every single one of their concerns. But EMI was in trouble. They were the smallest and the weakest of the major labels. The internet was killing the company, and management didn't seem to have a clue. So it looked like they were determined to drive the label into the ground no matter what they did. Then there was option B, sign with another major label, Uh, when it looked like the entire recording industry was melting down, again, thanks to rampant piracy and the disruption brought about by the internet. So in other words, a contract with another major might be no better than signing with EMI. But then there was also option C, go it alone and redefine what it would mean to be an independent artist. After thinking long and hard about it, Radiohead went with option C. It's a crazy idea. But then again, this is the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross.
There's Radiohead with Body Snatchers from their 2007 album In Rainbows, a record that, uh, well, just 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 hang on, we're going to get to that story. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third and final part of our look at Radiohead. Now, to recap, we've covered the band from their inception right through to the end of 2004, which brought us to the end of the touring cycle for the Hail to the Thief album. On one level, it was business as usual for Radiohead. They began recording new material in February 2005, contributing songs to projects like War Child and road testing some new songs on both sides of the Atlantic. On the other hand, the band's relationship with EMI Records had turned poisonous, following its purchase for nearly $4 billion by a company called Terra Firma. This was a private equity firm run by a guy named Guy Hans, who had zero experience whatsoever in running a record label. All we have to do to be profitable is run the label like we would any other company, like a proper business, he said. Well, good in theory, but a record label isn't like any other business. Radiohead was very public about their feelings towards EMI during this period. Here's a quote from guitarist Ed O'Brien. EMI is in a state of flux. It's been taken over by somebody who's never owned a record company before, Guy Hands and Terra Firma, and they don't realize what they're dealing with. It was really sad to leave all the people we've worked with, but he wouldn't give us what we wanted. He didn't know what to offer us. Terra Firma doesn't understand the music industry. Now, to be fair, Terra Firma did find a lot of waste and excess. Hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on flowers for an artist's album release party, a party that the artist refused to attend. Rumors of fresh fish flown in from Japan daily for the company's New York in-house sushi bar. Thousands of dollars spent on candles. But the belt tightening also continued to advances paid to both new and established artists on the label. Artists were told that they had to work harder, and maybe for less. You can imagine how well this went over with the acts on the label's roster. And remember, we're dealing with creative types. You cannot be brilliant on a schedule. Creativity and inspiration happens when it happens. Making records is not like making widgets on an assembly line. So after butting heads, Radiohead and EMI were deadlocked. The band wanted an advance of 10 million pounds. After all the tens of millions that they managed to deliver to the label since 1992, I mean, 25 million records sold, they thought they were worth it. But EMI wouldn't go a shilling beyond 3 million pounds. But that was only part of the problem. Radiohead also wanted some measure of control over their back catalog and how that music would be exploited going forward. But EMI would not budge. Under the copyright law of the day, they insisted on maintaining control of those six Radiohead albums for the standard 50 years. EMI would not hand over even a portion of the copyright to Radiohead. Neither side would budge. So Radio said, bye-bye, and began one of the most daring experiments in the history of the modern record industry. Radiohead went totally, utterly, 100% independent. This was radical thinking, but what would it mean? Well, they could just release songs digitally as they became available, maybe some through, you know, iTunes or whatever, or they could issue EPs every six months or so. Again, those would be digital releases, keep the overhead down. Okay, but what about fans who lack the technological means to get music that way? I mean, this is still 2005, 2006. Not everybody was buying music online and there wasn't any streaming to speak of back then. So their needs had to be considered. 
Okay, what about a business model? Do we just give the music away and make up the difference by charging more for other things like concert tickets and t-shirts? Wait a second. Why not just give the music away and let the marketplace determine its monetary value? No, no, that's, that's crazy. I mean, it's financial suicide. Nobody's going to pay for something that they can get for free. Or will they? Or will everything just completely collapse and ruin the band? Nobody knew. Another thing that really annoyed Radiohead about the traditional model of releasing records was the leak. Now, in olden times, when the creation, manufacturing, and distribution processes were so tightly controlled, it was easy to keep a record under wraps until the label let it out. Marketing plans, press, touring schedules, cycles, and music, all these things could be carefully synced up so the album had maximum impact on the consumer. Now, some leaks weren't leaks at all. They were carefully timed elements of an overall marketing plan designed to grab maximum attention and to cause hype and urgency. Occasionally, though, something might slip out before the label and the band wanted it to, and usually this was some kind of inside job at the recording studio or at the record pressing plant. But still, it was fairly easy to do the necessary damage control. But then along came the internet. One errant file from a hard drive, and suddenly the whole record was in the hands of fans, and all those carefully crafted marketing plans were shot to hell. Not to mention all the lost revenue, now that no one actually had to buy the record. Countless bands have been burned by unauthorized leaks. Korn, U2, Snow Patrol, Metallica, Linkin Park, and of course, Radiohead. In fact, the last four Radiohead albums, plus Tom York's solo record, somehow made it into the wild before they were supposed to, sometimes weeks before, and sometimes months before, which really ticked them off. So this got Radiohead thinking. Here's a chance to do something really radical business-wise and also prevent any kind of leak. What if the whole thing could be cloaked in a really cool veneer of innovative and artistic integrity? Here's what happened. The new album was complete by July 2007, right in the middle of the fight with EMI. The band decided that from that point forward, they were going to retain ownership of everything to do with the album. Publishing, masters, copyright, the whole thing, the works. This meant that Radiohead could do whatever the hell they wanted with their music. Something a group cannot do when they're part of a label deal. They also secretly decided to compromise how the album was going to be released. An internet-only release was back on the table. Released at first. As Tom York said to Wired magazine, we are going to leak our own album. But the terms of the transaction between band and fan, the conditions of the leak, was going to be unique to say the least. On October 1st, 2007, there was a brief message from guitarist Johnny Greenwood on Dead Airspace, Radiohead's official website. It read, well, the new album is finished and it's coming out in 10 days. We've called it In Rainbows. Ten days later, there it was, at inrainbows.com. And this was the first song to cue for the download. It's called 15 Step. The first song in the download queue when In Rainbows appeared online for the taking. And as we all know, anybody could take that entire album for free. When fans signed on to InRainbows.com at 5.30 in the morning, London time on October 10th, 2007, 
they found that they could pay as much or as little as they wanted for the album. The price they paid was completely up to them. Basically, this was the band saying, how much is this album, this music, worth to you? The only mandatory fee was a tiny credit card processing charge, 45 pence or about 90 cents. And and yeah, you could only buy using a credit card. All songs were ripped at 160 kilobytes per second and were completely free of any digital locks. So in other words, once you downloaded the song, there was nothing preventing anyone from doing whatever they wanted with the song. You could trade them freely, move them from device to device, and share them with your friends. In 2007, this was still a very big deal. Radiohead knew that traffic was going to be very, very heavy, so they used a private network that bypassed public internet servers. And so it was for two months. Free, or nearly free, Radiohead for all. Actually, once the songs were in the wild, a staggering number of people decided to download it from their usual torrent sites or through P2P sharing. In essence, these people were stealing a free album. Well, sort of stealing anyway. That credit card thing was no doubt a deterrent for some people. Later, we learned that only two out of every five people to visit inrainbows.com chose to pay something more than the basic credit card fee, and that the average amount they paid was four pounds. So it's somewhere around, let's say, eight bucks. That means 60% of the traffic to inrainbows.com was unprofitable for everybody but the credit card companies. Still, the margins were pretty good since all profits after expenses went directly to Radiohead. We're not entirely sure how much they netted from the two-month tip jar experiment. The band doesn't really want to say, but they weren't unhappy with the results. The number seems to be somewhere in the millions. Next, phase two. On December 3rd, 2007, Radiohead released a special disc box of the album. This was a premium physical release with a premium price. For 40 pounds, and there was no haggling on this one, you could order a box that came with a CD copy of the album, a second CD of bonus tracks, some digital photos, some artwork, and the whole record on heavy 180-gram vinyl. And yeah, they threw in the MP3 download for free. This is from the bonus disc. It's a track called Bangers and Mash. things before we leave Radiohead's In Rainbows album, and this has to do with the so-called Theory of Ten, and it's really kind of fun. In Rainbows came out 10 years after OK Computer, and we will get back to the third album in just a second. It was released on the 10th day of the 10th month of 2007. It was released 10 days after it was announced and following 10 cryptic messages posted on the band's website. Each message used the letter X a lot, and of course, X is the Roman numeral for 10. There are 10 letters in In Rainbows. The working title of the album was Zeros and Ones, zero one being a mirror image of one zero, or 10. If we designate OK Computer as zero one and In Rainbows as one zero, the two albums can be combined to create one mega album. To do this, create a playlist by starting with Airbag, the first track on OK Computer, and then moving on to track one of In Rainbows, which is 15 Step. Then repeat, alternating tracks until you reach Karma Police on OK Computer and All I Need on In Rainbows. Set things up so there's a 10-second crossfade between each song. You will be shocked at how well these songs flow into each other. 
Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. I think it's just everything uh, well, falling into place. This place is on a mission before the night out. Before the noise is close to get cameras. So did the In Rainbows experiment work for Radiohead? The numbers seem to say yes. Pure profits for Radiohead were said to be about 3 million pounds. Estimates are that it sold 3 million copies to date in all forms. And when it was finally released on vinyl, it became the biggest selling vinyl record of 2008. So good job you then. Fantastic. Now what? What's your encore for something like this? Back with more in a moment. Radiohead had a couple of years to figure out what they were going to do to follow up the In Rainbows experiment. In that time, EMI decided to show them who was still boss by releasing both a box set of all six Radiohead albums before In Rainbows, as well as a Greatest Hits CD. That was their right. It was their contract with Radiohead. Meanwhile, Radiohead recorded and released a version of In Rainbows featuring the band in session at the BBC. Otherwise, though, the public saw very little of the band. They just kind of withdrew collectively preferring to communicate through social media and their websites. There were no Radiohead gigs for over a year, and they also decided to explore various things as individuals. In fact, to the outside world, Radiohead as a working entity was basically AWOL. But they were getting together occasionally to work on new material, stretching over a period that lasted almost two years. Most of the recording seems to have been done in Los Angeles, with rumors saying that they'd set up at the home of actress Drew Barrymore, we have no proof of that other than a cryptic thank you in the liner notes for the resulting album. But we do know that a house in the Hollywood Hills had been converted into a recording studio for a few months in early 2010. There were rumors of celebrity parties in and around this house and a few pictures that snuck out on social media. Wherever they made the record, it was back to experimentation. The material on In Rainbows came out of playing together live and road testing the results. The song on the eighth album were conceived in a studio setting. Lots of samples and loops and ambient sounds and weird edits of different blocks of music. There was even a time the band brought in a bunch of turntables which were mated to vinyl emulation software. And if that sounds esoteric, it is. Whatever they did, the album coalesced around the rhythm section of bass player Colin Greenwood and drummer Phil Selway. We'll get to that in a second. So how to announce and release this record? The first indication that an album was coming was a note on the band's website on February 14, 2011, saying that it would be available five days later. This time, though, there was a change. MP3s were 9 bucks US. A WAV version, which meant better, bigger files and more bandwidth, was 14 US. Anybody who wanted physical versions had to wait until the first part of May. Oh, and one more thing. At 37 minutes, this was the shortest Radiohead album to date. They called it The King of Limbs, and this was the first and only official single from the record. It's called Lotus Flower. Our approach of In Rainbows could never be duplicated. You can only do that kind of thing once. So Radiohead tried some different approaches with the release of the King of Limbs album to gin up word of mouth. There was something called the newspaper edition, 
created by longtime artwork collaborator Stanley Donwood. It came with a newspaper-like insert, which was designed to fade when exposed to sunlight, thereby creating a metaphor for the natural decay of living things, or something of that sort. This was published under the name Universal Psy, which was also distributed as a free paper at indie record stores around the world on March 28, 2011. Lots of poetry and lyrics and artwork and short stories. You know, very Radiohead. That was followed by some live shows. And this is where disaster struck. First, though, here's more from the album. This is how it starts. And it demonstrates what I meant when I talked about being rhythm heavy, using weird loops and samples and strange edits. This is called Bloom. Radiohead and Bloom from The King of Limbs. It took a while for the band to get out on the road behind this record, partly because it was so difficult to reproduce live what they had done in the studio, hence the need to add a second drummer. His name was Clive Deemer, who had done a lot of recording with Portishead. There was a surprise appearance at Glastonbury in June 2011, a couple of dates in New York in September, and a musical guest appearance on Saturday Night Live. A full North American tour began in February. And this eventually brought them to Downsview Park in Toronto on June 16th, 2012. As the temporary stage was being constructed on a sunny and nearly windless day, A. Bullock, Radiohead's business manager, noticed something weird about the stage. The roof seemed to be drooping. He took a picture just in case, but didn't say anything, thinking that, you know, everything's under control. He's not an engineer. What, what would he know, right? At around four... About an hour before the gates were supposed to open, a part of the stage constructed for that night's gig, a structure laden with 7,000 kilos of gear, suddenly gave way, plummeting to the ground and killing 33-year-old drum tech Scott Johnson, a guy who'd worked with drummer Phil Selway for years. He was killed by a video monitor that weighed 2,270 kilos. Three other members of the crew were hurt. The band's entire light show and most of their musical gear was destroyed. Everything had been running late, too. Had things been on time, Radiohead would have been sound-checking at the time of the collapse. The show was canceled, of course, and everybody was devastated by Scott's death. And then came the long, farcical train of investigations, lawsuits, countersuits, charges, switch judges, legal bureaucracies, two criminal trials, and in the end, a mistrial that left everything unresolved. Parties included Live Nation, the promoter, Optics Staging and Services, the company responsible for building the stage, Dominic Kuligari, the engineer in charge of supervising the build, and all three defendants pleaded not guilty. Radiohead did not play Toronto again until July 16th, 2018, six years after the accident. And at the time I'm doing this program, nothing about the stage collapse has been resolved. Nothing at all. Still no promised inquest. And no one has been held accountable. In a really strange and ironic twist to all this, Ken Johnson, Scott's father, works for Britain's National Access and Scaffolding Confederation and sits on their health and safety and technical committees. He has no doubt why the accident happened. The entire European tour, which was to follow the Toronto date, was canceled. And the band seriously thought, well, that's it. We're done. We're never touring again. They eventually reconsidered, but there was a long, painful hiatus. 
Following the stage collapse tragedy in Toronto, Radiohead went underground for a long time. Everyone went off to do side projects again. Tom had his own personal crusade against Spotify. Phil continued to run marathons and worked on solo material. Johnny Greenwood got deep into scoring movies. Colin did some writing and made a few guest appearances, as well as indulged in his photography hobby. And Ed, he did some nonprofit work. Fans had to wait five years between albums. They didn't even start recording the album until September 2014, two years after the accident in Toronto. There was a brief time when it looked like Radiohead might get to perform the theme song for the James Bond movie Spectre, but the producer said it was too dark and ended up going with a Sam Smith song called The Writings on the Wall, which, by the way, ended up with both an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for Best Original Song. All right, well, let's have a listen to what Radiohead did. Here's their failed James Bond movie, and it's also called Spectre. All right, so no dice for Radiohead being a James Bond band, but they released that song anyway. You can find it digitally, of course, and on the B-side of the 7-inch single for Burn the Witch, which we will talk about shortly. When Spectre was rejected by the producers, they went back to work on a new album, and when that was done, they gave it the title A Moon-Shaped Pool. Not a lot of razzle-dazzle with this one, unless you count the fact that the songs are presented in alphabetical order. There were no crazy release schemes, just a straight, coordinated digital release through their website, iTunes, and, despite Tom's misgivings, streaming music sites. And if fans wanted a special edition physical version, that was available too. There were zero interviews for the album. None of the songs were road tested in advance. The only hints came through the band's website and social media accounts like Instagram, although they did commission some short vignettes to be released this way on Instagram, which was kind of cool. The only real bit of controversy came on June 17, 2016, the day the physical release of the album came out. A series of listening sessions had been organized at indie record stores around the world, and a shop in Istanbul, Turkey, was attacked by a gang who somehow believed that the shop shouldn't be playing music or serving beer during Ramadan. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. Some songs in the album have been hanging around in various states of construction since as far back as 1995. A track called True Love Waits was at least that old. And if you go back to the Hail to the Thief album in 2003, you'll find the phrase Burn the Witch, indicating that they were at least working on a song with that title back then. And this time, it's the first single. From a moon-shaped pool, here's Burn the Witch. sad thing about that song. On the day Radiohead recorded the string section, the father of longtime Radiohead producer Nigel Godritz died. And another sad thing, Tom York and his partner Rachel separated after 16 years, and then she died of cancer that December, a few months after the album came out. And then Radiohead was accused of breach of copyright for the style in which the Burn the Witch video was shot. Let's get one more song in here. I mentioned that True Love Waits had been hanging about unfinished since 1995. Okay, well, it was unrecorded anyway. It had become a live favorite over the decades, making this the most popular unreleased Radiohead track.
And this brings us to the end of our Radiohead history as of the end of 2018. How much longer will the band keep at it? Don't know. But they haven't had a single lineup change since the late 1980s. Same producer, same art director, many of their crew have been around for decades. I think as long as Radiohead enjoys working together, they'll continue to do it. And because everybody has their own things going on, and because we could do an entire show on just Radiohead side projects, it seems that all the members get to exercise their own creative urges, which should give Radiohead fans some hope. If you missed any of the shows on Radiohead, download the official Ongoing History podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google's Podcast Store, everywhere. Write a review if you can and drop a rating on the thing. It's very helpful to us. We need the feedback. You can also reach me directly through alan at alancross.ca. Then we have my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day with music news and information, and you should also get the free newsletter. We can also connect through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 